This is Live from Ukraine, a conversation with Ukrainian voices taped live on Twitter Spaces. To join future audiences, follow me at Benjamin Wittes. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Live from Ukraine, a highly eccentric podcast from Lawfare and Goat Rodeo recorded in front of a live audience on Twitter Spaces. My guest today is Stas Olenchenko, the founder of Ukraine Explainers, which uh, about which he will uh, give an explanation momentarily. But it's a it's a site that does uh, uh, very brief slideshows uh, explaining uh, matters in the news regarding uh, Ukraine's war with Russia. Uh, Stas, welcome to the show. Hey, Benjamin. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with the question that I ask everybody. uh, Who were you before the war started uh, or before this phase of the war started? And uh, what happened to you on February 24th? Yeah, I think that's a very valid question because for many Indians, it has been, you know, life before and life after. So, yeah. Yeah. before the war, and actually still am, I'm a UX writer by day. So I'm writing copy and content for software products. For example, if you're using Twitter and every text that you encounter in your user experience, there's a person writing this text, and that's me. Not on Twitter, <laughs> but uh, for other software products. Uh, I, I still do that. It, it's still my day job. So I think I'm lucky to, to have this opportunity. Uh, but after the war started, the full-scale invasion started, uh, together with my partner Maria, we also started to make these explanatory cards. Uh, we started doing it, I think, a week after the invasion started. It wasn't something we planned. It wasn't, you know, there was nothing before the invasion that we did like that. It was just something that we, you know, there was an urge to make ourselves useful in some way. And it happened that we were outside of Ukraine when the invasion started. And uh, yeah, we just tried to to be useful uh, while we were away. Where are you now? Uh, we are still outside of Ukraine. Uh, we're in Czechia, Czech Republic. Uh, we really want to return, but we're not sure when exactly. And you just, you happen to be outside of the country uh, for reasons unrelated to the political situation? Exactly. Yeah, we just went, uh, went on a small vacation. <laughs> yeah, and we actually went out like less than 24 hours before the invasion started. So, yeah, it was just like a huge coincidence. Wow. So your Twitter bio also says that you used to do a podcast on the climate crisis. Was, were you a, uh, was that your principal uh, 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 political and public affairs uh, passion before the uh, current crisis began? Uh, yeah, I would say that. Uh, again, uh, together with my partner Maria, we were doing this little uh, podcast in Ukrainian uh, where we would just basically sit and talk through different issues related to the uh, to climate crisis, also to different issues of Anthropocene. So yeah, it, it was just like an informal way to express our anger and, and frustrations about uh, the lack of, uh, you know, sustainability policies in in the world and especially in Ukraine, because we felt that it was kind of staying behind in, in many aspects of that. So 
it must have been very weird to have uh, left on a workcation, gone to uh, the Czech Republic, and then you know the war a, a war starts or a war escalates. The full scale invasion starts the day after you leave. Uh, tell me about the day of uh, February twenty for you guys. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, weird is, is one of the words how you can describe it. Uh, we basically uh, on February twenty third we went to bed, and on February twenty fourth I woke up because uh, because my phone was ringing from a couple of messages that I received. It was something like uh, five a.m., six a.m., something like that, and that was that was my younger brother uh, who is with uh, my family in Kiev. And uh, he wrote me that, like, can you imagine? We, I was just sleeping and we heard some, some bombs, something was going on. And so we're in the basement right now and we don't know what, what it is and what's happening. So, yeah, I, I read th those messages and I, like, it, that was it. <laughs> the, the war started for me then and I just, uh, I didn't, of course, I didn't fall back to sleep. I started to read all the news that I could. And, yeah. And, I think the next 48 hours at least, we were just on the phone 24-7 and, and contacting our friends and relatives and, and reading the news. And it was just like a non-stop uh, non thing, emotionally and, and you know, practically. And so we've all heard that Ukrainian men are uh, within a certain age range are not allowed to leave the country. Um, uh, you left the country before this started. I, I take it there is no uh, obligation for you to come back. Uh, no, there is none. You're you're right that if if I was in the country uh, by February twenty fourth, I wouldn't be able to go out. That's true. Um, I don't think I, I would go out if, if I was in Ukraine when when it all happened. To be honest, uh, but yeah, answering your question. I'm not uh, like I don't have to return by law. There were some, you know, calls to to return for, to those men who uh, who want to like, join the military right away. Uh, for now, I think I'm more helpful in in the place where I am now, doing things that I, you know, have skills in. So, uh, but yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe things will change. Maybe I'll feel that I'll be more useful in in some other way. So talk to us about the, uh, the role that you have been playing. You have been, uh, you've created uh, this uh, Ukraine Explainers uh, site and a, a series of uh, very elegant, very simple slideshows in many different languages. Uh, Walk us through what you're trying to do and what what the goal is and how you're doing it. Sure, sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for pointing out that they're elegant. Uh, our friend... Uh, I mean, <laughs> thank uh, you. other things, just as a matter of design, uh, that's hardly the most important thing in, the, in the, the current context. But, you know, as somebody who has, for the first time in my life, had to think about design issues in... I've been you know, projecting the Ukrainian flag and various uh, uh, other lights onto the Russian embassy. 
you think about how they look in a way that I don't necessarily, when I write a Lawfare article, think about how it's. And so I, I, I definitely noticed the design elements of, of, of this project. Yeah, thank you. As for design, uh, it, all credits go to our friend uh, Raya, who's a designer. So she, she made this blueprint and, and she made the design for our website. So all thanks to her. Uh, about the project, so basically Ukraine Explainers is, uh, was a spontaneous attempt to start spreading word. Uh, because at first, like in the first couple of weeks, we saw that a lot of mainstream media were not prepared to cover this war with all the colonial nuances that, that it had from the beginning. And uh, yeah, and our first, uh, first cards were about, I think the, the name of the first series of cards is why the war, why the Russian invasion of Ukraine is genocide. So it, it was something that wasn't talked about right away. People only started talking about it after the, they saw the horrors of uh, Bucha, European, and, and more and more evidence would come, come up. But uh, yeah, initially, some of the talking points that were crucial, uh, we just saw that they were not you know, covered enough. So we just started to, to do our thing. And because my job involves uh, explaining complicated things in, in a very short way on a digital screen, so that's, that's what we were started to do. And that's what I felt the most naturally was, was my, my thing to do uh, in terms of you know, helping informationally. And so what are the, what are the various slideshows that you've produced and, and uh, who is the intended audience of them? Uh, well, by now we have, I think, 13 series of cards. Uh, each series has 10 cards, I think, except for, for the first one because we didn't know the format back then. But yeah, it's just like uh, a complicated, uh, explained as simply as we can explain it in 10 cards. Uh, why 10? Basically because Instagram doesn't let you upload more than 10 photos in one post. So that's how we came up with this format. And... Uh, I don't think we have any specific, you know, demographics in our mind. Uh, of course, we started doing them in English, and we still are doing in English. All the translations are done by just tears from around the world. Um, so yeah, we just want to, you know, reach as as many people as we could. So we picked English, also because we work in English and I work in English mostly. Uh, so yeah, just like write it all up and, and see if there's any impact. If 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 anybody finds it interesting or uh, educational. And, uh, well, hope, the good thing is that a lot of people actually found them interesting and, and learned from them. So that's basically why we continued to make these cards and we're still doing it. So what languages do you have them out in now? Um, <laughs> I, I don't think I can recall all of them right now, but uh, a lot. Uh, I think 10 languages in total and two more are coming up. Uh, we don't have like every single series of cards translated into every single language, but it's a gradual process. Uh, we have French, we have uh, German, we have Spanish, we have Portuguese, we have Japanese, we have Arabic, um, we have Polish, uh, we have Italian. And a couple of more, and I'm struggling to remember them right now. Sorry about that. 
So I'm I'm interested in where the information in the cards comes from. You described it all. It's all all as fact checked. Uh, are these uh, points that you and your partner uh, uh, are making yourself? Are, are yourselves? Are they? Uh, are they? You know, coordinated with uh, the Ukrainian government? Is it? Uh, are these like? W- w- Whose message is this other than your own? Who do, who do they represent, in other words? Um, well, first of all, we, we do not coordinate in any way with the uh, Ukrainian government. Uh, I would say that we're trying to uh, communicate the perspective of, of Ukrainians, basically, because we think that Ukrainian voices have been underrepresented in, in mainstream media and, and in global discourse, even in the discourse about Ukraine, uh, if you look at it, often Ukrainians were just left out of this discourse. So we're trying to uh, make up for it and we're trying to provide this quality researched uh, content explanatory. And also uh, about fact checking, yeah, th- I also want to um, emphasize that we fact check everything that we post, we do our research. We also, if we feel that we're not sure about some wording or, uh, you know, about some statistical evidence that, that we use, we uh, send our draft to a couple of our friends uh, who also you know, take a look at it and, and give us feedback. So, yeah, yeah, these are all basically researched materials, but they certainly do have a perspective, which is, in our mind, a perspective of, of an ordinary Ukrainian. Yeah, so that's a really interesting. Let let's talk about the perspective for a moment because I I agree with you that it is a highly underrepresented perspective, uh, but one that I think a lot of people in the West have become suddenly sympathetic to. Um, so when I was a college student in the late '80s and early '90s uh, and studying Russian at a American university, I did not know that the Ukrainian language existed. I, we were just, uh, I think I knew that there was something called Ukrainian and I uh, was either taught or certainly not dissuaded from the belief that it was just a kind of Western dialect of Russian with an I instead of, you know, with an I in the Cyrillic character set. Um, and um, the the pervasiveness of certain Russian narratives about what Ukraine is in relation to Russia is was so deep and so unexamined that we just never thought about it. Um, and now I think there is a, a much deeper understanding that, uh, uh, that there is a whole set of, of, of counter understandings of what this relationship is that is rooted uh, in a kind of post-colonial understanding of the relationship. And so I'm I'm just interested in, in, in your description of where, where this uh, of what the perspective of the ordinary Ukrainian is in a sort of gestalt sense, other than, well, there are a whole bunch of Russians invading my country. 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, your your own experience that you described, it pretty much fits the, the feeling, I think, that a lot of Ukrainians have, because Ukrainians assume that uh, nobody really knows anything about Ukraine. And we have this idea whenever we talk to, to non-Ukrainians, to person from outside, we always uh, kind of feel and, and know that we have some explaining to do if the person is asking. Uh, for instance, it's it's often we were uh, asked like questions like, oh, Ukraine, so it's is, is it a part of Russia or, or not? Like it, it was actually a question like even 10 years ago. Uh, again, about language, it, it's also very popular questions we get. So th there's always this idea that nobody really knows anything about Ukraine. And yeah, it, it's our duty in a way to uh, educate people from around the world. And uh, you're exactly right that this post-colonial prism on Ukraine, this, this view, is something really new. Uh, I think it started in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the start of the war in Donbass. But it was still very weak. Mm, but I think it, it really is becoming a, well, I wouldn't say a mainstream view on Ukraine, but it, it is something that is being talked about quite often. One of the other things that is, I think, very confusing from a Western point of view is the what the essential elements are of Ukrainian identity. So there's a, in the West, we have, I think, loosely speaking, two models of a state, right? There's the United States, Canada, Australia, um, uh, 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 you know, which like immigrant Im immigrant based states that are uh, obviously, you know, have their native populations, of course, but the core of the national identities are these these civic identifications that are not ethnic based. They're, you know, the 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 national myths are that we're all immigrants. They're kind of melting pot, right? And then we have an understanding of a sort of ethnicity-based state, right? France, where, or you know, or Czech, uh, the Czech Republic, right? Where there's a people with a language group with a kind of some degree of ethnic homogeneity, or 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 not. But there's that that to be a member of that state has something rooted in that people, right? And then you have Ukraine, which is a really complicated, uh, it's, it's multi-ethnic, multilingual, uh, its identification seems to be pretty civic in its nature, but it also has a language it's got, uh, and it has this very, um, uh, this identity that mingles these two uh, uh, things that we think of, I think a lot of Americans at least think of as quite distinct bases for the state. What, when you think of the elements of Ukrainian nationality and national identity, to what extent is it an, is it a, a, an, an ethnic nationalism and to what extent is it a civic nationalism? That's, that's a very interesting question. Thanks for, for asking that. Um, I think there's a lot to unpack. Well, first of all, I would say that Ukrainian model of state is closer to uh, the second form that you described, the, the one that is uh, used in France and in Czech uh, Republic, 
because uh, although we are very diverse uh, ethnically, uh, Ukraine is still like the majority of population self-identifies as Ukrainians. They might speak uh, Russian, they might speak Ukrainian, they might even speak uh, different languages. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the legacy of, uh, of being a colony, because different parts of Ukraine in different times are colonized by, by different empires. Uh, and yeah, and that's the legacy we live with. So I would say that, of course, like Ukrainian idea of state is, is presuming that there's Ukrainian nation and it deserves to uh, express itself and, and govern itself uh, in a sovereign state. Uh, but I will also say that we, I think we accept and, and we have to continue accepting that uh, Ukraine is different and Ukrainians can be different and, and there's no, you know, it's not Ukrainian identity. I wouldn't say it's that homogenous as some of the other European identities, uh, precisely because all these, uh, you know, aspects of uh, language, of history uh, are just, you know, have been melting uh, differently throughout the last two, three centuries. We are going to go to audience questions. So if you have a question, this is a good time to uh, request to speak. Uh, uh, Ev, the floor is yours. Thanks. Um, Stas, you've written a very interesting thread about um, your story speaking Ukrainian, speaking Russian, uh, your family story about on this language uh, question. Can you walk us through it? Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that, that's another thing that I did on Twitter that got a lot of uh, impact and actually get a lot of followers precisely because of this thread. I was a little bit surprised about it. Uh, so when I was working on, on some of the cards, Ukraine Explainer cards, uh, there was this topic of language and identity in Ukraine. And I just felt that it could not be expressed in just 10 simple, concise cards. So I wrote a 50 tweeted thread instead, <laughs> as you do. Um, and uh, yeah, basically, I just told a story of my family, uh, stretching back like 100 years, approximately, uh, and described how my family went from being a speaking rural family, just an ordinary farmer's family in Kiev region, to being a Russian-speaking family, while identifying as Ukrainian ethnically. And just uh, pause yeah. there and give us a little bit of... So, so that is a... Uh, an account that you know a lot of people are will be confused by, particularly people who are native English speakers. Um, uh, how does that? How did that happen? And what? And 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 how how did that work? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I invite everybody who's interested in this topic to to read this thread. Hope it's not too long, but. Uh, if, if I'm, I'm going to try to explain it shortly. Um, so basically, Ukraine, most of Ukraine was uh, under Russia, the Russian Empire, uh, until its fall in 1917. And uh, there were different attempts by Russia to outlaw Ukrainian. And in uh, 1876, they, they banned any use of Ukrainian in public, in education, in, in printing of books, even importing uh, 
Ukrainian books, uh, well, books written in Ukrainian from from abroad was illegal. So Ukrainians were living in in this um, in this state for uh, more than a century, and it resulted in you know Ukrainian language being marginalized basically only to to rural population, and um, yeah, and and there was even like a mix of oral Ukrainian and Russian introduced in some. Uh, regions of Ukraine because people were people had to speak Russian when they were learning in schools uh, and when they were you know doing trade or uh, interacting with the government. Uh, we remained largely Ukrainian speaking in their private lives, uh, which is the case of my family as well. But uh, then the Soviets came to power and they used all kinds of different things that actually hurt Ukrainian identity even more, I think than the Russian Empire. Um, one of the things was uh, collectivization in 1929, uh, because many uh, Ukrainians were deeply rooted uh, to you know, agriculture, and it was their life. And uh, collectivization meant that a lot of people were um, well, stripped of their land and uh, arrested, detained, repressed, because they were farmers. That's why, that's actually how my uh, great-grandfather's family came to Kiev, because they were warned and they just ran away to not be sent to Siberia or even executed. Um, also, uh, in 1930s, there was this huge uh, set of repressions that we call the executed renaissance, where hundreds of Ukrainian brightest minds, artists, um, poets uh, were either detained and sent to Siberia or were just executed. And a lot of educators were just fired from their positions. And basically all the people that were leading this, this renaissance of Ukrainian identity and culture, uh, they were just gone in just a decade. And so just to be clear, this is essentially separate from the Holodomor, which takes place at the same time, right? One is directed at uh, the uh, rural farmers and peasantry, the other is directed at, at the intellectual elites. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, was just, uh, I was just about to say that there was also the Holodomor that killed around 4 million Ukrainians who, again, mostly rural people. And even those who were not killed uh, were just, you know, mm, put through such insane misery that I think even if they had some will to, to fight for their, you know, identity language, uh, which is broken for a lot of people after that. Uh, and also, again, we, we should not uh, ignore the fact of uh, World War II, which took lives of about 8 million Ukrainians. Uh, so yeah, my, my point in this thread that after the Second World War, there was, uh, well, basically Ukrainian identity was in a way decapitated and, and repressed. And that's when uh, Soviets became to install this idea of uh, Russians being the, the dominant nation, being the victorious nation. And uh, again, all the education was turned uh, to Russian. And yeah, speaking, speaking anything but Russian in public sphere became the sign of uh, being uneducated, being not civilized, you know, it, it's, it's a classic story of colonialism, to be honest. 
And uh, we've, we've faced it for like the last 50 years of Soviet Union. We had this policy in place and families would just, even if they had uh, spoken Ukrainian, they just switched to Russian because it just was the, the language to, to live your life with because you couldn't speak Ukrainian and hope for any you know, career advance, advancements. Uh, even, even social ties could be uh, jeopardized. So, so, yeah. In other words, one shouldn't assume that because somebody is native Russian speaking that they don't identify as Ukrainian, uh, either ethnically or uh, or nationally, and moreover that the 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 effort by the Russians to I mean Putin said you know Russian has been canceled right um, this is the 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 effort to revive Ukrainian language is actually an effort to reverse a hundred plus years of policy of repressing it. Is that fair? Totally. Uh, one of the one of the biggest points I think I, I'd like to make is that uh, you should never, not you, Benjamin. I just mean generally, please never mix uh, language and ethnic uh, identity in Ukraine because. Uh, you know, chances are you're just going to get it wrong because, uh, well, if, even in my example, I'm, I always considered myself Ukrainian and my family as well. Uh, all my family comes from Kiev region. So there's, there's not even, you know, some kind of interesting uh, story about it. Uh, but yeah, my, my parents, my father was Ukrainian, uh, was Russian speaking from, from his birth, from his childhood. And me as well, I spoke Russian in my family. We still do. We try to speak Ukrainian and, well, not try, we do speak Ukrainian, uh, you know, as, an, as a part of this effort to, to come back to our roots right now. But yeah, I, I was a Russian-speaking Ukrainian all my life. And it was actually a surprise to me when I learned that a lot of people mixed up these uh, identity markers. And for somebody on the outside, I might seem like uh, a Russian in Ukraine, although I never felt Russian at all. Yeah, I mean, I think I think some people are just naturally confused by it um, because it's actually a little bit confusing. But I also think that the Russians have made a point of making it as confusing as possible, and they've tried to um, they've tried to create a world in which uh, I think people's mental model is almost like Yugoslavia 30 years ago, right? So there's, you know, there's different languages which correspond to different nationalisms, which correspond to, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, you have to draw borders that separate Russian speakers from Ukrainian speakers. And I think there's a certain intentionality to the way uh, Russian policy has talked about this. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's one of the key parts of uh, Russian strategies is to just mix up, mix up all these identities and basically claim all people who use Russian in their daily lives as their subjects. And and I think this is this is something that is happening not just in Ukraine but in all countries that were once uh, Russian colonies. Uh, basically, all these countries like like Georgia, like the Baltic states, Moldova. they have. Yeah, exactly. They have Russian speakers precisely because there's a legacy of colonialism. And now Russia is trying to use 
its uh, mistreats of the past to justify their open aggression against these states. Uh, and again, I, I just want to make it clear that uh, Russian speaking speakers in all these countries are not, uh, you know, Russian property or, or Russian subjects, Russia's government subjects. And often they do not identify in any way with Russia. Uh, yeah. Uh, April Sparkles won. The floor is yours. Thanks, Mr. Wittes. Um, as a longtime supporter of Lawfare Pro uh, Podcast, I am so thrilled that you're doing this space. And I just want to thank you for using your platform to lift up the voices of Ukrainians. And Mr. Olashenko, I have a thousand questions for you. I do a space almost every evening on Ukraine um, to lift up Ukrainians' voices. <laughs> the fear, because I, I really don't want to monopolize the space, but I am particularly concerned about um, not only lifting up Ukrainians' voices, but also perspectives. And, you know, knowing that Russia hasn't really achieved its military objectives, um, you know, there, a lot of the time in our spaces, you know, there's a lot of questions, concerns, points of view about more serious weapons. And I was just curious, um, you know, to hear your point of view on that, because I think, you know, this, I'm looking to, to, looking for people that can be a steady hand during this tumultuous time. Um, and so I just, I would really love to hear your point of view on that. And then I also, you know, I think more importantly, what can I do as someone that hosts spaces, um, help to really make these more meaningful and propel solutions. So we have a lot of folks from Western company, countries, European countries. Are you satisfied with the support for Ukraine? Is there, is there any recommendations that you, that you might want to share with the space? Thank you. Uh, thank you for your question. Uh, I just wanted to clarify, uh, the, your first question was about the uh, potential use of uh, nuclear weapons by Russia or, or more, you know, ag aggressive way of leading this war? Or, or did I misunderstand it? I think uh, she's no longer uh, here, but I think she was asking about uh, the uh, possibility of escalation uh, in, uh, to presumably weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, yeah, then I got it right. Well, uh, certainly, I'm I'm not an expert on nuclear nuclear power and and the use of nuclear weapons, but ju just like as as a Ukrainian channel in Ukrainian perspective, I can say that uh, a lot of people in Ukraine, um, well, we are in in the war of extermination. We are being exterminated and for many ukrainians these like calls that there might be some escalation they just seem i mean they're, they're reasonable concerns uh for anybody outside of ukraine but for ukrainians this is this is already happening and of course it can get worse and everybody understands that but we don't have any you know great debate or um it, it's it's not as big topic in ukraine as it is outside of ukraine because we are already in a war of genocide and we're already fight for survival. So that's, uh, I think a lot of Ukrainians have this view that, well, if something like this happens and then it happens right now, we, we cannot do anything like to prevent it because by not fighting back, we're just going to induce more suffering on ourselves. Um, what about her other question? Uh, to what extent are you satisfied with the support of outside countries uh, and that support has come in many different forms. Which which countries are you uh, more and less pleased with? 
Um, well, I wouldn't say like I don't think we should uh, create a list and go like country by country, uh, who's better, who's worse at supporting Ukraine. Just want to say that uh, of course there have there has been like mixed uh, reaction from the world, uh, from different countries. Uh, we definitely felt uh, very deep solidarity with uh, Poland and with the Baltic states uh, because we just it felt that they understood us from day one. And the fact that they realized that they, this was a war of extermination from day one, and they, uh, well, promoted this idea that Ukraine should be given weapons uh, and, and Russia should be sanctioned uh, as hardly as, as it is possible. We saw it from the earliest days, and I think there's just this huge solidarity right now in the air. Um, also, just notably, all former, in different ways, former colonies of Russia and all countries that have had immense murder and displacement from uh, Russian occupation at different times. Well, we know, like, we solidarize with a lot of these nations, of course. Uh, the reactions of different states uh, were different. For instance, like, uh, Georgia and Moldova were a little bit slower to uh, accuse Russia of the things that it's doing. Uh, many Ukrainians realize that this is not about how people there treat this war, but it's mostly a uh, result of this, this specific government's policies. Um, yeah, basically, like, returning to, to your first question, like a general uh, evaluation of the support that we received, I think, of course, we're super thankful for every support that we receive. And, and we see it and we hear it. And this is something that that is felt. Uh, I think one of the, I think the biggest disappointment was that um, the support was quite slow in a way that um, the well, Ukraine was talking about this uh, that th this kind of war could come since 2014 because th that's when Russian ag aggression began. And again, Poland and, and Baltic states, there were also a warning, uh, Western Europe and the US, that something like that could happen and actually most probably will happen if there's going to be more appeasement. So I think that the disappointment is even after Russia invaded, there was still some hesitancy. How do we help? Should we give Ukraine arms? Should we uh, treat it as uh, just a you know war for some specific land, or is this a colonial? Is this a war of genocide? Uh, all these things that were honestly quite clear to us since day one, and I think to some some of the states that have witnessed Russian aggression before firsthand. Uh, but yeah, a lot of countries like they they needed to take their time to to understand these things, and even now. Uh, sometimes from some of the messages that we hear, uh, we realize that there's still not enough understanding of this, the context of this war. You have another question, Ev. Yes, uh, it's about actually this distinction between uh, 2014, as you tend to say that it's the beginning of the war, and uh, the, the February 24th, where we tend to say that it's the beginning of the war. The war. Um, actually, the, my question is, I would like you to explain us um, why... You feel when we talk with Ukrainians, uh, they always use the, the full-blown military uh, invasion, and not and we tend to say that um, it's the twenty February twenty fourth was the beginning of the war. 
And I wanted to, to know why it was important for you to make this distinction. And it's actually back to your point about us being slow to, to realize that the war has been uh, there for a long, long time, way before we tended to realize it in the West. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, I mean, it, it's really not hard in a way that uh, if part of your land gets annexed uh, and, and then you have an ongoing military conflict through these proxy forces for, for eight years, it, it does feel like war and, and it felt like this, that was the start of Russian aggression. It just had different phases and different goals and times. But yeah, on February 24th was just the day of the full-scale invasion when there was an attempt to, uh, you know, conquer the entire state. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, imagine if your country had some land and you had an ongoing military conflict in, in some areas and people would die there actually like every week uh, for eight years, you would kind of believe that this was already the war, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I think for a lot of Ukrainians, it's important to make this distinction precisely because this is not obvious. This aggression that started in 2014 is not immediately connected to this invasion that we have right now. And, and it's, it feels important to, to emphasize this and to, because again, um, Ukraine has been saying that a thing like that could happen, uh, since 2014. And to say that the war has begun on February 24th would mean that nobody has ever predicted it. Nobody knew that this could have happened. And before that, there was actually no aggression. And it's, it's an easy way to uh, jeopardize any negotiations on the status of Crimea and Donbass. And I think this is very dangerous. And, and it's, a, it's a perfect way to manipulate this issue, this, the whole issue of Russian aggression against Ukraine. Yeah, I just want to emphasize that latter point, that if you, if you think about it as two discrete military episodes, one in 2014, where Russia seizes some territory in the east and it seizes the Crimean Peninsula, um, and then a second war that happens starting in February, it's very easy then to see the baseline uh, for the second war as the status quo as of February 23rd. That is, Russia holds those territories in the east and has annexed Crimea, and that's the baseline against which you're measuring now. And so you say, okay, well, if we can just return to that situation, then we will have corrected the problem of the current war. But if you see it as one continuous war that flared up and had entered a different phase then you see the status quo ante as a different place, which is to say the uh, territorial borders of the state of Ukraine, which involves, uh, and you're, you're, you're arguing from and negotiating from a different, a different starting point. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think it kind of makes this issue more complicated, but I mean, this issue became more complicated partly because there was not enough uh, international reaction to the annexation of 2014, in my personal opinion. Um, of course, uh, right now, the, the, this active phase of this war right now, uh, Ukraine's main objective is to return to the borders of February 23rd. That's, that's for sure. But ultimately, if we let Putin 
um, legitimize his annexation of Crimea and parts of Donbas by a full-scale invasion, then it would mean that he actually achieved some win and, and he achieved his goal through uh, this violent uh, war of extermination. And I think this is a huge issue for, for geopolitics and, and I think for, for the West as well. Yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, uh, the critically, the original objectives of the current uh, 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 invasion are not happened. There won't be a, a replacement of the regime in Kiev. There won't be a conquest of the entire country. Uh, there won't be the installation of a Russian puppet government. Uh, on the other hand, the Russians have destroyed Mariupol. Uh, they've uh, taken a fair bit of additional territory in the east. Uh, how do you assess the current uh, state of the war? Uh, Ukraine is at some level winning, but it's not. Uh, but expelling the Russians doesn't seem to be happening, at least not yet. How how should we understand the state of the conflict today? Uh, well, I, I think I'm definitely not an expert to to give uh, you know uh, any evaluation of of their strategy and and achievements and losses. Uh, I think mm, I think it's important to understand that for many many Ukrainians, uh, the full scale invasion uh, was a turning point that made. Uh, that basically created a lifelong goal for them. And I certainly feel that. And this lifelong goal is to restore justice and to make Russia face its uh, face justice for its colonial crimes uh, against Ukraine. Uh, and ideally, like all colonial, uh, all of their colonial policies, because again, we now see that this uh, issue of unchecked Russian imperialism, I think, lays in, in the basis of this conflict and so many other conflicts that Russia uh, has been in for the last two decades. So what, uh, what is this, uh, the, you know, what is a, you know, without asking you to comment on military strategy, what does the end of the war look like to you? What What's a satisfying, uh, you know, if, if, if you could, if I could say, uh, I snap my fingers and we have a, a ceasefire. What are the minimum terms that you would consider having me snap my fingers for? Hmm. <laughs> that's a good question. That That's a complicated question. It's a actually. hard question, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think the current objective that we're fighting right now for the return of the borders of 23rd of February this year, uh, these are the objectives that are like, you know, the minimum objectives, we, I don't think Ukraine will be able to agree on any terms that are not that. Um, that's, that, that's for sure. Uh, again, I, I'm not talking about Ukrainian government and its actions. I'm right now I'm talking more about my own personal perspective. Yeah. You're think, perspective as a Ukrainian, as a citizen, yeah. as a, as a person who is now out of the country as a result of Russian aggression, what's satisfying to you? I mean, my best case scenario, something that I think I, I want to keep uh, keep helping this, this cause that, that I want to 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 support. Uh, it might sound too ambitious, uh, 
but I really think that uh, the ideal scenario is that Russia is uh, just, you know, false as an empire because it, it still is an empire and it's something that uh, history has ignored for some time. And so many other ethnic uh, groups outside of Russia and inside of Russia have suffered similar genocidal oppression for centuries. And I think that, I hope that this war would be the beginning of the end of the Russian Empire. So, yeah, th that would be the best case scenario for me, because this is the way to to restore the ultimate justice, I think. Those are pretty ambitious war aims, uh, but uh, 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 very admirably stated. We are going to leave it there. Staz Olenchenko, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a very interesting uh, discussion. Thank you. We will be back as always. You can find uh, our uh, the the next uh, scheduled um, uh, episode of Live from Ukraine will always be pinned to my uh, the top of my Twitter feed. Uh, and if you go to the top of my Twitter feed and there is no episode uh, pinned and no Twitter space pinned, it's because I haven't scheduled it yet. So um, uh, keep an eye on that, and we will see you next time. Live from Ukraine is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Uh, you know, the engineering, I'm doing it myself because it's Twitter spaces, but it is produced and edited by folks at Goat Rodeo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>